640 Toronto presents Think Tank, the breaking stories you care about. Please tell me. Okay, I'll tell you. The backstories you don't know yet. That's my question. Facts and opinions that get you through your day. You never know what you're going to get. And now let's meet the guests. Let's do that. A couple superstars with us this morning. That's for sure. That's me saying that. And and they've been properly vetted. They really have. They have absolutely been properly vetted. I don't expect a single skeleton to pop out of the closet or anyone to pop out of the closet, really, in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Mitzi Hunter is a former education minister, cabinet minister, and, of course, a former liberal MPP and mayoral candidate. It's great to have you on this morning. It's great to be on, and thanks for the vetting. <laughs> I'm happy happy to vet. Vetting's uh, complicated this early in the morning, and especially over the phone. Uh, Steve Pakin joins us, author, broadcaster, commentator as well. It's great to have you in. Mitzi, have we vetted Greg? Oh, my gosh. Don't, oh, yeah, don't go there. Yes, Steve. <laughs> Yeah, there's a high school yearbook that had a had a rather uh, troubling quote. Uh, that, but just from a band, I think I quoted Guns N' Roses or Simple Minds or something. It was a mistake, whatever it was. Um, let's start here, Mitzi. Um, you've seen your fair share of politicians throw themselves on the sword and say, I'm sorry, and say, please forgive me. We saw it yesterday from Anthony Rota. Before I ask you if you were sure he'd resign yesterday, let's let the audience hear what he said. I've subsequently become aware of more information, which causes me to regret my decision to recognize this individual. I wish to apologize to the House, and I'm deeply sorry that I have offended many with my gesture and remarks. I would also like to add this initiative was entirely my own. The individual in question being from my writing and having been brought to my attention, no one including you, my fellow parliamentarians, or the Ukraine delegation, was privy to my remarks prior to their delivery. Okay, he brought as a guest a Ukrainian man who served in a Nazi unit in the Second World War, but he didn't just do it on a Tuesday in February, Mitzi. He did it with Vladimir Zelensky, someone of Jewish heritage, the Ukrainian president there, and they were there, obviously, to honor him. And this has now become a bit of a global embarrassment. Were you, were you surprised Anthony Rota made it through the day yesterday? Oh, this is so, I mean, we all feel this embarrassment. All Canadians feel it because we were glorying in the pride of welcoming a world leader who is taking on so much for the rest of us. And, um, you know, this recognition was done entirely at the speaker's bequest. He had this guest in the gallery he wrote the name and acknowledged this person and gave him the spotlight he has to own it as difficult Mm. and as challenging as it is he has to own it and it's more than just what is happening in the canadian parliament it's affecting the propaganda machine that Putin has, you know, around the world in this war. It's so, it's, it's unfortunate, unintended for sure. He was, you know, recognizing someone from his local riding. Who doesn't do that? I did that. Mm-hmm. Everyone, mm-hmm. everyone who's elected, you want someone local to be recognized. However, it was a big mistake. He's apologized sincerely. You, you know that, we know that, mm-hmm. but the consequences are much more. 
Steve, to what Mitzi said, I, I think we agree. We don't doubt that Anthony Rota feels utterly mortified. He's probably barely slept in the last three days. That said, when the NDP and Bloc step up yesterday and say, we've got to ask you to quit, we can't see you in the same context and light anymore, then it's up to them as to whether to give him a second chance or not, isn't it? Well, it is, and so far they're not doing that, and they're sticking with their position. I want to pick up just on the last part of Mitzi's point, which is, and, I, and Greg, I, I have to confess, I think I've changed my mind on this story. I think I started with, uh, I think I always start with the premise, is it possible that the explanation that we're given is plausible? Mm. Is it possible that what they're saying is plausible? Namely, that the Speaker of the House of Commons proffered an invitation to this guy without having it vetted by the prime minister's office or by anybody else, by anyone in the Ukrainian delegation. He did this on his own. And as a result, you know, he's going to fall on his sword to the extent that that happens. And my initial reaction, I think, was the same as most people's, which was, no, not when somebody like Volodymyr Zelensky comes to the House of Commons. It's not plausible that just the speaker was in on this. But when I found out that the guy lived in his riding, right, they're both from North Bay, Ontario, right? When I found that out, I thought to myself, you know what? It actually is plausible that this guy, knowing of the man who lives in his riding, decided with the Ukrainian president coming, I'm just going to pull an audible here and do this on my own. I don't know that that's what happened. Maybe we do need to investigate Mm. further so we can actually get to the bottom of this. I found what Selena said in the past half hour very important, which is we should be less worried here about making sure who gets fired and more worried about making sure that we put a new process in place so this kind of embarrassing, disgraceful incident doesn't happen again. But is the is the explanation now plausible? I think maybe it is. That's an interesting concept. I, I don't know if you got to hear Selena Caesar or Siobhan earlier, Mitzi, but she was very much like, and, and I think your mayoral campaign echoed this a lot. You know what? We can call this person out, call that person out, look in the rearview mirror, but do we want to fix something? Do we want to fix something moving forward? And and Selena was very much like, regardless of the speaker's fate, let's fix the vetting process so something like this never, ever happens again, regardless of, of political ideology or who's, who's pointing fingers right now. <laughs> you know, that's I, I think it's, it's worth an attempt. You know, when we get tickets, you know, or formally when I got tickets for things like, uh, you know, the speech from the throne or from, you know, the the finance minister giving the budget. It's it's not, you know, it's not a organized process right now. Mm. It, it's, you know, you figure out who, which individuals, you know, maybe helped you on a campaign or locally that you, you know, it could be a, a volunteer, it could be a family member. And, uh, and, and it goes through the protocol office. It, it doesn't, you know, go through um, the, you know, the, the party leader's office. Um, and so it, it's, it, it's, um, and, and actually that's actually what makes it even more of a embarrassing situation for the speaker because, you know, protocol is normally the domain of, of the speaker. So, you know, if there should be any vetting, it should be at, the speaker's office level that it happens. Steve, I did have an MP tell me yesterday, it shows maybe we all need a history refresher also, because the things I don't remember from high school, French, science, math are, are voluminous. But I did remember that there was a U.S.-Soviet alliance from 1941 to 45. So if you introduce somebody as fighting against the, the Russians in 1943, that should have pricked a lot more eyebrows up than it actually did at the time. <laughs> 
You know, Greg, this is actually the first thing that popped into my head, <laughs> which was clearly there were. And you know what? We understand this. The speaker himself doesn't necessarily make all the arrangements surrounding this. Mm. Uh, he relies, obviously, on a bunch of staff who are probably in their 20s and 30s and who may not know a darn thing. If they're like every other 20-year-old and 30-year-old in this country, they may know very little about World War II. And the first thing that went through my head was, this is somebody who clearly, whoever organized this, did not understand World War II alliances at all. And yeah. if, if nothing else, if nothing else, this has done at least something to make all of us a little more aware of what the alliances were like 75 years ago. Uh, and 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 hopefully we can come away with at least a little bit of an enhanced understanding of our mutual history. I got you, but I worry about that because I saw that Steve in the summer for for the Bernardo thing, and people are thinking, oh, what if some kid in Marco Mendicino's office who's twenty eight? How are they supposed to know who Paul Bernardo is? Steve, you do hiring. You you speaking of vetting, you'd vet out young people coming out of journalism school or with politics degrees, and you want you've got to get people who sort of are well-read and, and have read their history. I don't want to diminish this and say it's it's just, and I know you're not, I, it's just not just generational. You got to put smart people in important roles that know their history. I totally hear you. And I got a funny little story on that. I remember once my buddy, Dan Dunsky, who was the first executive producer of the agenda, we created the show together. Mm -hmm. He's uh, He's got a, a young woman in his office and he's vetting her for a new producer job on the show. And she looks up at the wall and she sees this picture of a kindly old gentleman. And she says, oh, is that your grandfather? And Dan has to look at her and say, um, no, that's Franklin Roosevelt, <laughs> president of the United States uh, a long time ago. Oh, and uh, do, Greg, do I need to complete the rest of the story? She didn't get the job. I, 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 well, there was no social media at the time. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> but now we have the Internet. We'd have to rely on World Book. And our parents would have to have World Book encyclopedias, Mitzi. We'd have to count on them updating those encyclopedias. <laughs> We did. Uh, or take a trip to the library. By the way, I think all three of us would watch a show where um, millennials played a game called President or Grandfather. And you just, <laughs> I really would. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's not Uncle Bob. That's Ronald Reagan. Like, that would be a fun game show to watch. Mitzi, let me come to Queens Park now. I, this is uh, your bread and butter. Uh, you're a star MP with the liberal, MPP with the liberals. It's the first day. But I hear all these stories. There's pressure on the Ford government. There's heat on the Ford government. I know it wasn't an ideal summer for Doug Ford, but can there be pressure on a government with 79 seats? Their nearest opponents have 29. You've been on the other side of this. At Kathleen Wynne, people forget, increased a majority government by 10 seats when she was elected in 2014. Is there truly heat on the Ford government with an election two and a half years away? Well, I have to say, Greg, it was kind of like the first day of school yesterday. Just um, the excitement of the legislature coming back, a scandal that was, you know, rocking the government over the summer. And don't forget about those two by-election losses that mm -hmm. Ford uh, had in the middle of the summer. And, uh, and then, of course, greeted outside and in the galleries by protests, protests for things that he'd done, Bill 124, which he's uh, now uh, taking on appeal um, to, to, the, uh, to the courts. And, uh, and, and, and this was also about uh, privatizing health care. So all the issues came right back, no, you know, notwithstanding that there was a five-month break. And people are not going to let Premier Ford forget about the decisions that he's made that they disagree with. And the Greenbelt scandal mess, whatever it is, is going to keep unfolding. 
you know, whether it's the legislation that's going to be introduced that's going to cause more debate. We know the opposition uh, Merit leader, um, Merit Stiles, is going to introduce her her own bill that she wants uh, to, to be considered. Mm-hmm. And also, what about the RCMP? Are they going to investigate? What's happening with Mr. X? How does it affect those MZOs? So there's so many questions and, you know, people are wanting to know, you know, what did the premier know about these decisions? And I believe that those yeah. answers have yet been given. That's uh, Mitzi Hunter. Can I jump in on that? Yeah, absolutely. Steve Pakin. Yeah, jump right in. The thing you have to remember about the choreography of question period is that the the vast seat differential does not really it's not apparent when you're watching question period. Right. Question period is very choreographed. Opposition question, cabinet minister answer. Opposition question, cabinet minister answer. It looks very even when you look at it like that. People don't necessarily see, oh, my goodness, look at all those Tories and look at that very tiny opposition. They say Question, answer, question, answer. It looks like a sort of an even teeter-totter of a fight, in which case um, the vast numbers that the premier has on his side over the other two parties, that's not so apparent during question period. And so it looks like a much more even battle, which, in fact, it is. Uh, That's the nature of question period. Steve, I also think there's the scandal last week. I think it's a week ago today. We just started to find out about the uh, Khalid Rashid scenario, the trip to Vegas, the wind spa, all that stuff. But I thought it was significant on Friday when after the green belts reversed, Monty McNaughton, a well thought of, well respected, uh, especially by uh, even, you know, people from different parties just says, I'm done, and walks away on Friday. More people told me over the weekend that was notable, that maybe this is a little bit spiraling out of control for the Ford government. Well, I always think we should be careful about reading too much into anything. And, mm-hmm. and again, let's go back to my first question. Is it plausible that he's stepping aside right now because he has future leadership aspirations and he does not want to be tarred by all the stuff that's coming out right now? Is that plausible? Yeah, that's plausible. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it may very well be the case that, and, and, and I know this happens to be the case, Monty's a young guy with a young family, young daughter. Uh, you know, I don't have to tell Mitzi about what life is like in yep. public life. It's a very, very 24-7 kind of a job. And he may simply have decided that he's been in long enough. He did good work for the party. I think the fact that the um, Progressive Conservative Party was able to steal, what was it, eight seats? from the NDP in the last Ontario election is a huge testament to the work that Monty McNaughton did uh, making organized labor and the progressive conservative party closer than they had ever been. Certainly private sector unions, not the public ones, but the private sector unions. So, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, Greg, this may be just a guy who's done his time has had enough. He's in his, I think mid to late forties and he wants to try something else. There you go. Yeah. And, and Mitzi, bringing it up is not to tie him in with the Greenbelt scenario. It's just bottom line. It's the last thing the Ford government needs right now, because this was a really respected cabinet minister. It's the last thing they need is to lose a good person that could reach across party lines. And, and Steve is bang on. He got a lot of unions on board saying, you're looking out for me. You're looking out for us. Yeah. And the timing couldn't have been worse for mm-hmm. Premier Ford. And certainly, you know, Monty didn't delay his timing, given how how much uh, the government was on the ropes with uh, with Greenbelt and, you know, in the midst of an apology for their mistakes. So, you know, the premier has not had a good summer or a good start to to this uh, this session. And I I believe that he's got to 
tell Ontarians what he's going to do to improve their lives and actually show that he's making progress because it's not looking good right now. The more he loses, you know, good people like Monty McNaughton, and there's probably going to be others that, you know, either fall into out of favor with him and he, you know, kicks them out mm-hmm. and they become independents. We saw that in the last session. Uh, or they just decide that this is not what they want to do. They didn't sign up for this. Yeah. And uh, you got to know, Monty yeah. McNaughton didn't wake up on a Monday and just decide on a Tuesday to resign. I mean, this guy, this obviously was at least six months in the making. So when he probably, you know, stuck his toe in the water to think about whether he wanted to get out of public life, the green belt as a, as a, as a you know, as the scandal it is today, uh, that hadn't even popped its head up yet. So. You know, let, let's be a little reasonable on this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve Bacon, Mitzi Hunter joining us on Think Tank. All right, this Toronto scenario, Mitzi, as a mayoral candidate, I read this headline in the Toronto Star this morning, it's cheaper to get a ticket than paying to park in some Toronto lots. <laughs> <laughs> the city wants to change that. And I know you were talking about fees, you were talking about revenue sources and tools and whatnot, but this makes perfect sense to me. If you're going to a big concert or a, a Raptors playoff game and all of a sudden it's 50 bucks to park beside Scotiabank Arena and you're thinking, ah, a ticket's 30, that lot is charging 50, why don't I just leave it on the street and take the 30? The city, <laughs> it's good logic, it's good math. The city wants to fix that obviously and 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 uh, and get their money back i you know i didn't think of this one as a <laughs> revenue tool but it, it makes sense and you know this is this is about rising inflation and it's affecting the cost of tickets when there's a major event now it's very localized and i i would imagine the city would have difficulty just localizing the cost of a fine in in special event areas um, but it is a problem because there's a huge amount of traffic congestion for events and it slows everything else down. So they have to do something to keep the peace and make sure that people follow the rules. And they're going to have to, you know, maybe it's a it's an increase in the tickets overall. They, you know, they mm. they're no longer a deterrent. So. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Uh, I know, Steve, that was certainly brought up a fair bit during uh, the mayoral campaign. And and people noted even, why would I take public transit? TTC users get a $425 ticket if they ride and don't produce their ticket. And you're thinking, I'll just drive and pay for the parking instead. But to Mitzi's point, you can park anywhere along the street and it's a $30 ticket and you're in a better spot than a lot of lots, especially near big events. Well, I apologize in advance for this comment, but I'm going to make you throw up in your mouth a little bit here because, uh, Greg, I'm such a good citizen that there are times when I know that the cost of parking is going to be roughly the same as the cost of running the risk of getting a ticket. And I will actually consciously say to myself, I don't want that thief who owns the parking lot to get my 40 bucks. (laughs) I'd rather give it to the city of Toronto, which needs the money and can do better with it. I actually make that calculation in my head. So apologies in advance to everybody for that ridiculousness. Okay. So you, you started this then, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and that personalized license plate on your car gives you away every time. I think that's a, that S. Pakin on the uh, on the Ontario Yours to Discover no, plate. No, sir. <laughs> no vanity plate on my car. 
<laughs> well, let me come around back to the uh, I, I want to come back to this uh, U.S. poll on Joe Biden. Um, we've been meaning to talk about it for a while with somebody. So there's a Washington Post ABC News poll showing Donald Trump ahead of Joe Biden in the popular vote. As we know, polls are ridiculous. Polls didn't spot Trump winning. Polls didn't spot Brexit. Polls have been wrong about a few recent leadership conventions. But there's more chatter than ever that 82 year old Joe Biden. There's a little bit of whisper, whisper among the Democrats that they'd like a different candidate. Like, Mitzi, do you, how do you view it? It's such a sensitive subject because it involves age and getting older for politicians. But do you think a movement could grow to have somebody challenge Joe Biden in the primaries? I don't think so. I think that if there is the real risk of Donald Trump being the the, mm-hmm. the one that, that challenges uh, the Democrats, that there's there's no one else other than Biden that can confront that. And, you know, they're similar in age. So that, you know, that's a moot point. I, I don't think that the Democrats are going to take that chance. And who do they have that's ready to go? There isn't anyone. Yeah, I know, Steve. I saw that Gavin Newsom is going to debate Ron DeSantis. And it feels a bit like a. You know, they're those bronze medal matches in uh, in in uh, in some sporting competitions. I'm like, well, that might be the presidential debate we all need, but it won't be the one we get between Newsom and DeSantis. Instead, we're going to get Biden Trump a year from now. Do you see any other way it changes? Well, the tradition in American politics is that if you are the sitting president, you ought not to be challenged for your nomination. And it's only happened a very few times where that took place. And it never ended well. Teddy Kennedy tried it against uh, Jimmy Carter back in 1980. uh, And all Kennedy did was weaken Carter enough to enable Ronald Reagan to win a landslide. Uh, I think actually Ronald Reagan did it against Gerald Ford back in the day as well. Uh, It also didn't work well for him. But it did work once. And that is that when Eugene McCarthy challenged Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1968, it did work. And it was in the throes of the Vietnam War. And as a result, it really wounded Johnson who did very badly in the New Hampshire primary. Again, he won the primary, but the the groundswell of opposition to him Mm. and to the war in Vietnam was apparent in the candidacy of Eugene McCarthy. And ever since that, ever since Eugene McCarthy in 1968, there have been just the slimmest of hopes by people that you could challenge an unpopular sitting president. Problem is, I don't know how unpopular Joe Biden is. I don't know if there's anybody else the Democratic Party could put forward that would have a better chance of beating Donald Trump. And beyond all that, this poll showed a 10-point bump for Trump over Biden. They aren't national elections in the United States, guys. They just aren't. They are 50 state elections. And a national poll isn't going to tell you anything. Give me 50 individual accurate polls, and I'll tell you who's going to win. But one national poll is not going to tell you anything. Yeah, the Electoral College uh, is what determines everything. Can I also say that what's helping uh, Joe Biden is that Jimmy Carter made a public appearance. I was very shocked ahead of his 99th birthday, which is October yeah. 1st. So wish, wish him well. Yeah. It's incredible. I, every time like you heard that he was in hospice care, like eight months ago and he's able to make public appearances, his wife is still so prominent. It's really rather remarkable, but Steve, I mean, we just don't do this. We've never done this in Canada. The oldest premier, I know we've talked about this has been in their mid sixties. We've never had a 70 year old prime minister in modern times that I can think of. We had a couple pushing it, but we just don't do this. We, we, people go off to the cottage and enjoy their legacy. We don't do this. It does say something about the state of politics in the United States today, that the two 
in the judgment of many, the two best candidates for the two major parties are both going to be, I mean, by the time the next election comes, is Donald Trump going to be 80? If not, he's going to be awful close to 80. And mm-hmm. Joe Biden will be into his 80s. And it's, it's I, I, don't, I don't want to sound ageist, because, yeah. you know, the people are never wrong. It's true <laughs> sometimes, but never wrong. But it's hard for yeah. me to imagine that there aren't people who are 20, 30, and 40 years younger than these folks who wouldn't be better alternatives for governing. Yeah. But it, it's the only way to settle this. This is about a rematch. It is, isn't it? This is what, yep. this is what Donald match. Trump is saying, that, you know, he didn't lose the election, so... And uh, and this is an opportunity to finish it. Yeah. And he won't lose the next one, even if he loses it. Uh, I think we, <laughs> we'd agree on that. Uh, I got to leave it there. You guys were great today. Thanks for everything. Thanks for the fun. <laughs> great to be with you again.